the horrible situation of COVID has shown everyone that the physical world actually matters. You know, um, you know, before people were like kind of cargo culting this stuff. I'm like, oh, yeah, they, where do things come from? The store, you know, um, and, and I think that like, you know, now they're like, oh, wait, the store can run out, um, you know, and then people have to think about like containers and shipping and China and all this stuff. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, what's up? Welcome to episode 113. Today, we'll be exploring the future of hardware, manufacturing startups and industrial policy. We're entering part two of our three-part epic with Nick Pinkston, who is a manufacturing renaissance man, to say the least. He's been the founder and CEO of multiple manufacturing-focused companies for over the past decade and is currently the founder and CEO of Volition, a marketplace dedicated specifically to industrial components. And if you've been listening to part one, you already know this. Part one is focused on Nick's latest venture, Volition. Go back and listen to that if you haven't. And part three will be focused on his venture before that, Plethora and the lessons he learned from that experience. But today's episode is really focused on Nick's perspectives about the manufacturing industry and its future in general. Plus, we'll be taking a number of questions that our audience submitted in advance. So here are three things you can expect from this episode. First, we're going to talk about manufacturing and hardware startups, as well as some of the verticals, regions, and technologies that Nick is bullish on in our industry. Second, we're going to talk about community and the things that we need to do to foster more collaboration in this space. Finally, we're going to discuss industrial policy. Now, this is a topic that Nick talks a lot about outside of this podcast, so we're going to get a summary, hear some of the highlights of his thoughts around industrial policy in this episode. If you want to learn more, if you want to access any of the resources we mentioned in these episodes, well, hey, head to the show notes page. This one is manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 113. And by the way, if you want to take part in discussions like the one we're having today, well, hey, you should be joining the Manufacturing Happy Hour industry community on LinkedIn. We have over 600 members in this group. We're constantly having conversations similar to the ones that we're having on this podcast. Would love to see you there. If you want to join us, you can go to manufacturing manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community. It'll take you straight to our page on LinkedIn. And with that, it's time to dive into part two of our conversation with Nick Pinkston. We're, we're about a third of the way through our conversation at this point. And in the figurative world of drinking beers with one another right now, we need a <laughs> refill. So let's go, let's go to California real quick. Let's say we're okay. hanging out in Oakland or somewhere in the Bay Area, San Francisco, whatever it is. Where would we be getting our next round for the next part of the conversation? <laughs> oh, man, that's so funny. Um, I feel like the place I always go to is the Interval, which is the Long Now Foundations like cocktail bar. That place is great. Um, also very good for showing off machining and other stuff. Um, yeah, they have like the long now clock, which for those who don't know, it's like they're trying to inspire long-term thinking by making a clock that like runs for 10,000 years, like winding itself with the temperature difference and day and night. And it's this monument scale thing and they have pieces of it, like, you know, big, like a chime and a few other things um, in there, which are really cool, huge machined, water jetted out 
stuff um, on display, as well as a lot of cool history and stuff. So anyway, that's that's probably like one of my favorite places to grab a drink in uh, in all of like the Bay Area. It's an awesome spot. Like it's right out there on the water, not too far from the Golden Gate Bridge, right? Like yeah, that's, you, it looks that's right spot. over in the back room. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. If you're looking for a picturesque spot where you can learn a few things and get a good cocktail in the process, yes, highly recommend the Interval. It's been a long time since I've been there. Um, it's really good. And Friday night is the time when all the food trucks are out. They're back after COVID, and so then you can get like you know all your different food truck stuff. There's a lot of great like gourmet food trucks up, and then there, really, really nice. Yeah, it's a it's a great spot, cool area. So, all right, we're 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 drinking cocktails now. Um, yeah, we're gonna yeah. talk. We're Getting gonna serious. talk <laughs> exactly. Well, we're we're moving to. The future of the industry. That's the theme for this part of the conversation. And and we did something unique. Um, I've mentioned it before. We took uh, took questions from, let's say, the audience or people that, that follow you, Nick. Um, I'm going to set a baseline one, though, that I think is very important as we get into some of the more detailed ones. Why do you feel hardware startups are so challenging? I think let's let's <laughs> let's start there, because I think that plays into a lot of the other things we're going to talk about. Yeah, totally. And and I'll differentiate between hardware startups and manufacturing startups because I think there's actually different stuff going on. Um, you know, technically I've never done a hardware startup. I mean, as far as like making a device that I sold and having someone else make it, like I've made other people's stuff. You know, so that's a manufacturing startup where you're in, like process innovating, you know. I mean, it, it seems like what ended up happening is the maker movement then, and, and I was part of this too, where when I moved to San Francisco, I was like, the hardware startup movement was just just a little thing, right? And I remember I had um, the hardware startup meetup. We had like 8,000 people ultimately after a few years. But in the beginning, Tech Shop put a thing out. You know, Tech Shop was like a uh, sort of pro-ish, you know, like kind of more expensive makerspace kind of thing that had a lot of great equipment, subsidized by Autodesk. Thank you. Now, uh, unfortunately, bulldozed and turns into uh, some more housing, which we need. But, you know, back then there was, uh, you know, this great community that was there. And I remember having the first meetup with probably like 40 people, but it was funny. Some of the OG hardware people, it was like, you know, Eric at Pebble. And I want to say James from Fitbit and, you know, really early like companies in that whole thing. And just all these, all these hobbyists, you know, and we'd have people do these two minute pitches, you know, and it was interesting to see like consumer stuff happened first, which is like, I think the normal thing in startup world is like, you know, kind of invent what you know. And the issue of why those are so hard, I think, is that they were like instantly knocked off by folks in China who are way better at manufacturing than anyone in that room. You know, and like people would do these Kickstarters because none of the VCs, probably a good reason, wanted to fund that stuff. And everyone was really mad. They didn't want to fund the like connected, you know, water bottle or something like this. But instantly it was knocked off. And so I think in that sense, it's like you have to have real technological advantages or real marketing advantages, you know. So, you know, we just saw the liquid death water, right? That are like valued at like a billion dollars or something. 700 um, million. I just saw yeah. that this morning. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we, we see companies like that. It's like, you know, it's not because they invented new kind of water or new kind of cans. It's like, they're just really good at marketing. And I think that totally is a thing that can work um, because obviously like, you know, China doesn't know the American market as well as the Americans do. So, you know, you can succeed in that way. But man, there were a lot of ones that happened that way. I think also you are in hardware just, so that's on a marketing side. On the operational side, I just think that like, a lot of people who started are more from the tech community, not the manufacturing community. And it was all of their first time. So it's like, oh, I'm an electrical engineer. I'm going to do whatever. And it's like, great. But like, that's your first time. And the people you're selling against, they've been doing that shit for like 20 years, you know? So, um, 
So I think that like that was one issue with it. But I think it's just defensibility ultimately. And so people were trying to make these like SaaS subscription models on stuff. And I just don't think many people, you know, I mean, the ones that were like huge were like Peloton or Tonal, right? Those are the most modern versions of that model that actually did work. And they were like, you know, a lot of a SaaS company with this kind of hardware thing you had to buy. But I think that actually works. But that's consumer. The other thing we've seen, which I, I'm more excited about, is actual hard tech stuff. And I think the problem there is like, Science is hard, you know, um, and I think that the the VCs are right to think that the payback periods are longer and probably the risk bars are wider, as in like more high risk. Um, and I think that is definitely an issue. Like you see a lot of people who overpromise on this stuff and then can't do it. I'm definitely in there as far as like plethora thought that we could go faster than we did, yada, yada, yada. And so like, I think that we've seen people figuring out what the right balance of that is. We've also seen, I think, you know, I really love um, Andrew at Path Robotics story, which is, I, I want to say him and his brother were doing a PhD in, uh, I think, Case Western in Cleveland. And um, they uh, they invented this robotics technology, which was like automated welding, right? So they, they took auto welding robots and they made a way to like automatically reprogram them from the given job right to, to replace welding and um and they did that in an academic setting kind of de-risking the core tech and then when i saw that i was like oh man like and i'm you know full disclosure i was an advisor really on that company but i was like helping them come to san francisco and like raise money or whatever at the time and andrew's just done such an amazing job you know everything after that but i think a lot of it was like they had years to get their tech right and i think a lot of people once the vcs are like hey you better make this tech you don't have academic like time to do it, you know, like the money, money better come out pretty soon. And that often has a bad effect on developing technology that actually works, you know. So if you don't have patient investors, you, you can get screwed. And I, I've been there, you know. We're going to have an investor question later on in this conversation. I know we will, <laughs> but I didn't mean to interrupt there. No, not at all. Um, and so I think that's the issue with hard tech. So I've actually been interested to see like in manufacturing tech and in sort of the modern era, you you start out with like your maker bot, right? Very maker, it was very much of the moment. I think they were very fortunate to sell when they did because, you know, there was an explosion of different copies of their stuff that happened after and, you know, wasn't highly differentiated. But then, you know, I think they kind of blew up and everyone like didn't care anymore. Then we got into like some other, you know, say like desktop metal and carbon, you know, were like two really heavily funded high tech probably didn't hit the, um, you know, what their pitch decks said, you know, um, as far as what they could do. And I think that was hard. And so, okay, like got, got some limited success there. And I think now we're in like the third generation. And so we're seeing companies like, yeah, like say an atomic using 3D printing for um, injection molding. We're seeing like a mantle or actually, I, I don't even want to not name all these different companies. And maybe like actually Max um, at uh, Form Labs was maybe the most like prudent conservative guy because i remember talking to him like 10 years ago whenever they started it and uh and you know he had like a you know thing of 80 20 that was like the machine and they made a great machine still make a great machine um and i think that like they basically didn't overpromise. like max was like just make it work is is good enough like it's hard enough to get a reliable machine that actually works you know and so i think they did a good job so i think it's it's really challenging to do this um really well but i think the investor base is coming up i think we're seeing a lot more um like high quality founders coming in. It was like just hobbyists, you know, when sure. I was first starting. And so I think that's improving the community and, and venture is getting a little bit better at knowing how to fund it and diligence it. But it, it's still like kind of everyone hates our guts, but like 20 <laughs> companies, I think. But, you know, on the venture side. Um, so I think there's a lot of room to go, but it was just like hard, you know, it was hard as hell for me to get money for Plethora, you know. Um, I was lucky Founders Fund did it because their kind of brand helped us raise money, you know. Yeah, I'm glad 
Great long answer there. I'm glad you brought up the difference between hardware startups and manufacturing startups. Second, I was wearing my Path Robotics jacket on the way to grab coffee this oh, morning. Nice. Love, love that group. <laughs> They've been on the show before, so they are oh, awesome. also also manufacturing happy hour alumni. But you you brought up another question that I had in mind is I feel like you were super early in like startups <laughs> for manufacturing, right? Because everyone understood software, not everyone understood yeah. manufacturing and hardware, right? Just your general thought. Has that improved over the years? Is the community larger? Do you think people are starting to get it? A hundred percent. I mean, you know, as evidence this year at IMTS, there was actually a happy hour for like a VC, multiple VCs hosted a happy hour at IMTS and went to IMTS. And these are people who are investing in everything. They're not just manufacturing VCs. Like some of these guys invest in everything. And I was like, okay, this is some turning point. Like I think finally it's in many ways, the horrible situation of COVID has shown everyone that the physical world actually matters, Yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, before people were like kind of cargo culting this stuff and we're like, oh yeah, they, where do things come from? The store, you know? Um, <laughs> and, and I think that like, you know, now they're like, oh wait, the store can run out. <laughs> um, you know, and then people have to think about like containers and shipping and China and all this stuff. Um, so I think part of that was just, okay, the Wall Street Journal started talking about it. The Wall Street Journal didn't give a shit about manufacturing. You know, if you try to go into, I think it's like very deep three menus. There's a manufacturing channel on the journal. Um, no one cares. So I think, and, and you know, who are investors? There are a bunch of dudes from the Ivy Leagues who went to like one of 10 banks or consultancies or whatever. Um, they are they are highly privileged people who never saw a factory before, you know? Mm -hmm. And if they did, they were trying to like fire half the people. So like th that's roughly the, the people. So for me, it's like, you know, I had to like this before I got into it to do it, you know? And I just don't think a lot of people in tech are actually from a blue collar background, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I, I agree with you, right? The pandemic showed that supply chain was an issue, right? And then everyone yeah. started realizing, oh, the biggest problems that we can solve right now are no longer, yes. I shouldn't say they're no longer software problems, but we realize the amount of other problems that are out there that need to be solved totally. associated with hardware and manufacturing. So, And, and if you if you take the, um, you know, there's this adoption curve thing, like the kind of crossing the chasm thing, right? And I would say that like we just got through maybe early and late majority, we're sort of like midway and late majority and maybe going into the laggards. And the laggards are not just because they're like old and don't like software. It's like, those are the toughest industries. So it's like, yeah, it was easier to make, you know, a CRM like Salesforce or whatever than to automate a factory. So obviously we're going to start by funding just basic sales and marketing software. So mm -hmm. hence why there was so much of it. And same for mobile and everything else. So I, I think the order was actually rational from an investment, investing perspective. But now it's like those deals are marked up so much and so obvious that these companies are just not returning money to the venture people. So it's like, okay, it's so obvious that like maybe 15 years ago before Sarbanes-Oxley, those would have just IPO'd already, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And now that's like less in fashion or whatever. So now we're in the the post uh, Starbucks world and I think they, they go around longer. So it's like the VCs are trying to play later and later, but they're basically like private equity at that point. So I think now manufacturing is a fresh space to make change in, you know, even though it's harder. And just for context, I, I really I really want people to understand when you got started in this. This is 2022. When was your first time like courting investors, like doing your first <sighs> startup? What what year was that? Just out of curiosity. I think that would have been either 2008 or nine. I think it was okay. 2009. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Almost 15 years ago at this point. Yeah, man. I'm an old man. Yeah. No, no, no. No, you're experienced. That's what I always say when yeah, anyone yeah. talks about their age <laughs> on this show. <laughs> well, hey, let's let's start taking some of the audience questions. I think there's there's yeah, there cool. are a, cu a couple good light ones to start this off. Um, this one comes from Justin Lopez, and it is, what core manufacturing tech are you most excited about? 
I mean, I have to say that I'm very, I feel very vindicated that there's so many companies that are basically like plethora for X, you know? Um, like, I think that this thing people used to actually, this is funny. So a question Peter Thiel asked me is the classic Peter Thiel question, right? He always says, what do you believe that everyone in your field um, thinks the opposite or something to that effect? And, you know, what I told them, um, this is before they invested. Um, I told them, like, uh, I think that this is when additive was like, you know, at, at like really going up. I'm like, everyone thinks 3D printing is going to like replace all the stuff. And I'm like, I don't think that's true at all. I think the traditional processes will be with us forever and we just need to put computing inside of them, right? So I think I, I, as a software eating the world thing, I still think that's true. And it's like, there are physics reasons why additive manufacturing will not be as good as say, you know, die casting or some more bulk process for certain applications, right? There's manufacturing as an ecology. So it's been good to see all these really fine grain manufacturing tech do that, you know? Um, so I love that. I love that we're seeing a lot of those come out right now. Um, I, I think that like just digitizing manufacturing world, there's a lot of people who have to solve the sales problem. And that's actually one of the hardest things. There's actually a ton of manufacturing tech already invented and for sale, and it's not deployed. So I think we're seeing, you know, certain, like not even it's a tech, but it's just like, we're now seeing more people actually being able to sell the tech is exciting to me. Um, which I think, you know, maybe a little bit like the manufacturers know it's the writing on the wall. Maybe the second generation is taking over the factory and they're like, you know, they're 40, not 65. And so they're, you know, like a little bit more modern um, and that's happening. But yeah, so I'm into that. I'm very excited for what AI is going to do. I mean, I know that's so cliche at this point, but we're seeing so many cool things, you know, I mean, this is like the path and atomic and a few different companies are doing the AI thing. Um, I'm very excited about that. So what's the coolest, most tangible example of AI? Because AI gets thrown around all the time. I want to make sure we give like a specific example of one that's like yeah. really easy for someone to grasp if they're listening to a podcast right now. Yeah. I mean, I think that like if we take like path as the easiest example, it's like typically a person would use a welding torch and they would see where the seams of the metal were and then they would apply you know, the welds to the metal, right? And so in their model, as I understand it, they use computer vision to recognize the seams. They have the 3D and the AI is actually figuring out what approach the, the you know, the, the weld would actually have to happen, right? And I don't know all the ways they're doing that, but that's roughly what it is. The reason that AI matters is the edge cases, uh, in this case, quite literally. It's like, you know, when you have parts that are all different ways, like in, in machining, right? I know that one way better than welding. You get these weird things where it's like, oh, like you're clamping this C-shaped object and it warps. So to prevent that, you make a fixture just for that C-shaped object. That's like, you know, and, and you do these things that like are really hard for a system that's rules-based to do that has a finite set of rules. And so like what I think AI enables us to do is actually do that long tail of stuff. It's not, it's not a panacea. It's going to take a long time and it's not going to fully do that. But I'm excited that it'll allow us to, to actually do some of these edge cases more than anything. Well, I've got another question that, that kind of piggybacks off the, the last one, but a bit of a different spin. Uh, Phil Ehrenstein uh, is asking, what in industries do you think will benefit the most from emerging manufacturing technologies? So now we're looking at the vertical industries here. Yeah, huh? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I actually haven't thought a ton about that, to be honest. Like, I've been thinking recently about, you know, it feels like that a lot of people are doing this for the most expensive industries first. So we're seeing a lot of space, aerospace kind of stuff happening. Um, I feel like that their vendors were, you know, one, it's very regulated. So a lot of people don't want to get into it. So competition was lower anyway, because of all the certs and everything. But I do think that like, it's more that if it's so expensive, it's okay if your company is not super efficient yet. 
that you can do it. And so you see a lot of people, like a lot of these early manufacturing companies, all their customers are space. But I'm not sure that means that space is benefiting so much from it. I think there's a bunch of issues of like just how the test cycle works when things are so big, expensive, and complicated. And I'm not really sure that is actually being solved right now. Um, you know, so it's it's hard to say what'll happen. I'm interested in sort of the stuff that um say like us and maybe like Vention is doing in automating how you can set up factories. And of course, you know, as a guy who ran a factory, I'm gonna be a little biased there. But you know, if, if we're gonna do all this onshoring again or reshoring, um, it does seem like there's this huge opportunity in helping, you know, automation integrators, people who set up factories, operations folks, actually be able to do that in a way. And so, you know, in the invention side, they're making like, you know, their own kind of um, micro CAD system that lets you spec out fixtures. On our side, we're providing this giant catalog of all the automation and, and various manufacturing components. A lot of stuff like that um but yeah it's it's hard to say on an individual industry level which ones are really happening because it feels like everyone's going high performance first and partially i think that's because all these technologies start off really expensive so you better have a really good use case for some performance improvement as opposed to a cost improvement i also think that vcs who are funding them have a bias towards performance because it's cool. It's like, we're gonna make faster jets and better medical devices. And you know, and that's that's a, a unlocking technology. It's not like, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna increase the PL by whatever percent, you know, in a certain way. Um, and it's like price competition is pretty rough anyway, but you know, both sides. So I think it seems like we're seeing more performance improvements, which tend to hit like aerospace or other more advanced industries first, is what it seems like is happening. So we're going to shift on this next question. It's about the community. Um, these next two come from Matt, which are, how do we foster more community in the hardware space? Like a one team, one dream mentality, if you will. Yeah, I know. It's interesting. And I've already seen some of this, you know. Um, so uh, Ryan Kelly and I, so Ryan Kelly is um, sort of like the tech guy for the um, American, or what is it, the Association of Manufacturing Technology, the AMT. And um, they essentially um, have Ryan, part of his job is actually running like these kind of happy hours where him and I like invite a bunch of the, the sort of leadership of the um, manufacturing tech startups. And we all kind of know each other. So I do think there's a little bit of community building there. But you know, Ryan is one dude. Um, and so like, and it's not even the entirety of his job. It's probably the minority of his job. I wish there was someone who was like full time just organizing this thing. So like, I think guys like you are telling all the stories, which is great. We need that. We need like our own sort of media to like actually tell the stories. I think we need people doing like drink ups and stuff. Um, and you know, there are a few investors who are like a little bit in this area. Like there's a little bit of like manufacturing Twitter you know, is actually a thing, which is cool, but it doesn't feel like it's anyone's full-time job. And I, I wish that like, you know, maybe like all the investors would chip in like 20 grand, you know, a year or something and just like bankroll someone to do that. Cause like I used to be that guy in hardware startups at first because I actually took time off of CloudFab before Plethora. And so I was able to just be like the dude connecting everyone, you know? And yeah. I, I feel like it'd be really nice to have someone paid to do that. Um, as far as the one team, one dream thing, there are definitely competition between certain companies, you know, like I feel like, you know, in the, in the post plethora space, you know, you've got, um, form logic who I'm an advisor to Hadrian is a thing. There's a few others. Um, you know, I'm sure those guys are not fully friends or at least, you know, they're, they're taking a little bit of each other's market share, you know, or at least maybe they would. Um, and so maybe there's a little bit of competition, but I feel like there's so few companies, there's actually not that many direct competitors. A lot of time, like everyone has their niches. So then is it like customer sharing? Like I've done that. So like, 
you know, you intro me to your people and, and vice versa. So I think a little bit of this is useful. One thing I'd like to see is not just in our community, but one thing that I know Ryan and I have wanted to do is how do we connect the AMT, like, you know, like the, the head of a big machine tool company or a big software, you know, CAD Autodesk type company, how do they connect into us and vice versa? Like maybe, you know, I don't know, Mori Seiki or some big, you know, giant machine tool company actually should be talking to all the software people to help them, you know, and, and vice versa. And, and not to mention like all the sort of corporate development and, and R&D people at the, um, you know, big companies, like even like an Alcoa or, you know, kind of like the more traditional ones. I feel like we don't get to see them. Like, why doesn't the corp dev person at Alcoa know all of my friends in manufacturing? You know, like they really should know that um, because there's like a lot of stuff that could benefit them. I do think there's some kind of missing layer between, I'm sure there's someone who's like smart at Alcoa and all those kind of companies doing like, looking at what technology is coming, you know, and maybe they see a little bit of this stuff, but they don't really talk to us. And maybe they don't think we're accessible. We don't think they're accessible. There's a little bit of like community building, I think that needs to happen. And I don't think anyone's really done that. You know, um, I thought that during the Obama White House, um, Tom Khalil was, I think, the deputy director of the OSTP, Office of Science and Tech Policy. And they did a really good job of actually bringing a lot of us together um, to actually work with the government and be like, hey, you want to talk to the DOE, the DOD, you know, we, we can make that happen. And so there was some cool stuff there, even between the government who, you know, we just saw the big, um, you know, the what it, Inflation Reduction Act or whatever, which is, you know, kind of an industrial policy bill. I'd love to see more of that too. We can, we can get into industrial policy stuff, but I wish there was an organizer of it, you know, and, you know, Matt, Matt is a VC and uh, he, he runs um, some meetups sometimes himself. So I think he's trying to do a piece of that as well. So it's a little bit ad hoc now, but that's good. It's, we're just, we're just getting started. Yeah, and, and you actually answered Matt's other question in, in there is what's missing in the community. So we covered that. Um, you also reminded me I need to get Ryan Kelly uh, on the show here at oh, some yeah, point. Totally. He was in manufacturing happy hour fashion. I moved away from the Bay Area like October 2020, and he was one of the last – people I had like in-person beers with before like <laughs> rolling out of there. So nice, shout out to nice. Ryan Kelly and AMT. Uh, we've got another fun question after this one. We talked about verticals. We talked about things you're excited about. What cities or regions do you feel will be home to innovative manufacturing companies? Yeah, man, it's it's a really good question. I mean, I think it's telling that you see like a lot of um, sort of companies not in San Francisco, right? So I was just spending a couple months in LA and actually there's a really great hardware scene there, which is pretty cool. And, you know, it's a lot easier to get space in LA and they have way bigger manufacturing, obviously big aerospace down there. So there's kind of like the SpaceX mafia that I feel like kind of seeds a lot of these companies, you know, um, and like other aerospace coming out of there, um, which is cool to see. So I think they've got a cluster going there, which is really strong because of that. Um, I love to see like Path and uh, Form Logic, both in the Midwest, I think Columbus and Pittsburgh, respectively. Um, so it, it's cool to see that. I mean, I think a lot of this is like, where's the founders of this stuff coming from, you know? And it's interesting, like, where are they coming from? Like, or, or at least where are they at? Um, and it does seem like the Midwest is part of it. I'm going to be biased there. Um, you know, I know some folks in the South that are doing it. I mean, it does feel like the South is like the new manufacturing places where, where the car companies are. So there's a lot of new manufacturing stuff being built there. The Midwest is kind of the traditional where like a lot of it was before the big movement South. So it's, it's interesting to see these regions kind of having the same thing. It's like, yeah, everyone grew up and, uh, you know, who did this stuff with kind of a fascination or a direct interest in this, you know, like I want to say that, um, 
like the path guys like the, wasn't their dad like a manufacturing ops guy or something like this i think so i'm not 100 percent on that but that story sounds right it's you know i remember hearing that like machinist is one of the most heritable jobs i think it's like 70 percent of machinists their dad was a machinist i mean something crazy like that and in our factory that actually held out like i mean how did people get in because no one even knows what a machinist is right now you know, so I, I do feel like you have these regional things it just comes from who's thinking about these problems, because it's not someone from New York City, you know, like they're, they're not thinking about how manufacturing happens. Maybe there's some hipster artisanal shit they're thinking about, <laughs> but they're not thinking about any kind of like how your parts are made, maybe like how your food is made, you know. I just envisioned some like makerspace in Brooklyn, as you were saying that a fictional makerspace in Brooklyn. I know they do exist, but that was uh, that that made me chuckle. (laughs) Props to New Lab, right? I mean, I think New Lab, which is the giant naval yard building over in Brooklyn, is doing a great job. And there's some cool companies there. I I do think New York has sort of a, um, you know, it is not the first place I would think about manufacturing, um, although it was a big manufacturing city. But yeah, I I think uh, um, I don't think of New York when I think of manufacturing startups. I mean, Boston also is interesting because so much robotics and CAD has come out of there. And there's there's always been a cluster of that stuff up there. Um, so there's a lot of cool stuff happening in Boston, too. Definitely would want to give them a shout out. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, this this episode will be out by the time I make this trip. But I'm going to be in Boston next week at a robotic show of all places. Oh, cool. I completely agree. We're seeing spots like Columbus, Pittsburgh. Those are two of the ones that I think jump to the front of my mind that have big not only manufacturing companies starting to double down there, but also investors that are based there as well, yeah. like drive capital out of Columbus. Yeah, so you're starting to see that, that move around. So I, I'm on the same page with you there. We're, we're going to get to the end of this segment here with a few more questions. And we are going to cover one of your favorite topics that you've mentioned, which is <laughs> industrial policy. So oh, yeah, let's, yeah. let's start off on a positive note with this. What do you feel we're doing right today? And, and for context, about 80% of the manufacturing happy hour audience is based in the U S and North America. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. So I would say this, like America as like, you know, what it is, the past, I don't know, 20, 30 years, basically during the neoliberal sort of era, when we said like, hey, don't do too much state intervention. Um, You know, I think the US has done a good job of having like the NSF, NIH, sort of DARPA kind of system funding technology that then the capitalist world then can take a move. I think that makes us very dynamic. Um, You know, I think that if you look at other countries, like say a Germany or a Japan, Taiwan, Korea, you know, they've done a much more heavy industrial policy thing. And it what it does is, is you know, and this is sort of the, the difference. It's like, you know, why are there not many American machine tool companies? Like you have Haas Automation and they're like actually really profitable and like, you know, whatever. But you don't have really high end stuff like you have, you know, a, a Moriseki in Japan or something like this. Um, and, and I think the reason is, is like you need really cheap finance for that. And so that's what those companies did. And there's an argument in economics that there's a crowding out effect of like maybe there's some zombie companies. Like why are there 50 different, you know, three access mills at um, the IMTS show? Like maybe there should be 20, not 50, you know? And so like I'm unsure if those countries are actually getting like, you know, there's a cluster effect, you know? But I don't I think that like we've basically invented technology like CNC and then let it go overseas. But that might have been the right move. It might be that like, yeah, yeah, like, are we really benefiting that much from not having all these machine tools made here? Maybe we are. Maybe we're getting everything from those machine tools. And actually, we don't need that cluster. It's an open question. 
But I think that's what we were doing. And of course, the venture capital community here and the ability to commercialize stuff is second to none, right? And so I think that just from a general perspective, industrial policy doesn't just mean industrial. It just means like any government supportive industry. So I'm kind of being like very broad here. And I think that like that dynamism is really good. Um, you know, when I talk to people starting um, companies overseas, they are all complaining just about regulatory stuff, you know, or the investors are too conservative. That's changing actually pretty a lot in the last five years. But um, but I think it's still more true. So I think that's what we're doing right, for sure. Well, I got another question. This one, I was going to ask it earlier, but it just seemed to fit this part of the conversation <laughs> better. Uh, Ruth Grace Wong wants to know, have you run into any regulatory issues that you, you just didn't think were right? Like, what were they? What kind of oh, manufacturing man. roles do you think? This is a loaded question. What kind of manufacturing do you think companies in America should be doing? And what do you think the government should do to encourage that? So yeah. take take okay, that question, whatever chunks you want. Chunks you want. <laughs> so the first one in regulatory stuff, like I haven't actually found that much regulatory stuff that personally impacted us. Like I would say there's like a couple major things with plethora. Like one, I would say the major thing is like, we actually could not, like we were probably operating illegally from a, um, a permitting point of view in San Francisco. Um, and you know, we, to, to move a factory and to keep changing it, right. means that you keep moving the electrical and plumbing and all this kind of stuff to, to feed the machines. And in San Francisco, like, doing any change at all requires all this insanity. So I was like, we'll just pay the fines, you know, like that's actually like better. And we even had the mayor come in one time, which is freaking me out. I'm like, okay, are any of these people going to care about this stuff? And I, I think that they were just happy people were manufacturing at all. So that, that's a little bit of the arbitrariness of San Francisco. Also like transit, housing costs, you know, I mean, that was what actually killed like so much manufacturing, I think in, in cities is just, you just couldn't get here. People were commuting from Santa Cruz an hour and a half. So I would say those are regulatory stuff for me. I'm sure if you're in biotech or something, there's a lot of other regulations that maybe you think are a little bit onerous or how the NSF requires certification. But I never personally ran into that stuff. It was all like, does the product work? Do people like it? You know, very business things, you know, were, were the hardest part. Um, as far as how to improve it, I think that like the US has like sort of systemically underinvested in manufacturing tech itself, which actually goes against the history of how we built it up. So like if I mean, historically, the US has been like a DOD led industrial policy a lot of the time. This is sort of post World War Two. And like CNC technology was the Air Force asking the MIT servo lab that made anti-aircraft tracking devices. They were like, hey, like we want to make our jets go faster with, with nice parts. So they invented both three and five axis CNC machining in like the 50s or something. So like, okay, the DOD did that. I believe the Navy was the one who invented CAM software for the same thing. And then for CAD software, that was invented by big industry, you know, so GM and Ford. And I want to say like the Bezier curve was invented by two guys, one from Renault and one from Citroen in France, I think, um, I want to say. So like, that's kind of why it's like, you know, your Autodesks and your, um, you know, these kind of people that are here. And then there's like the, the Dassault Systems folks um, in France. That was sort of in respect of industrial policy or big ones. So you, that, that's at least the history of it. We stopped investing in like maybe the 70s in fundamental tech. So for me, I'm like, the PATH guys were an interesting case in actually being able to fund manufacturing technology in a university setting. The NSF, I think I looked at this a while back, it's like 16 million was all of the total budget of tool invention. And it's like, no one is doing that. You know, it's like maybe the military has a contract to create very specific tools of like creating a, you know, better bulletproof vest or something like that. And they're making a specific technology, but not these universal tools. And I don't think private industry often does a good job because the payback period is too long. And so I think that what we might need to do is actually have like this initial 
um, you know, investment in R&D to get it going. And I think that there's a little bit of that sort of like more European Asian style industrial policy where we're actually giving, um, uh, you know, cheap loans to certain industries that create clusters, you know, like maybe, you know, like we're doing now with chips, like we're putting a bunch of, of chip fabs over here. We probably should try to retain being good at chips, which are kind of like the, you know, sort of steam engine of the modern era. I think that kind of makes sense to have clusters on that. But I think you can do it too much. And I think Asia and Europe have done it too much and they've lost some dynamism there and have a lot of zombie companies. But I do think we can do it more here. And that's both subsidied R&D and on the interest rates later. But you make it up in the clustering, which on net, you know, we're kind of you're throwing fertilizer on the economy. I mean, if you think of, a, of economics as a farming profession, you know, that's kind of how I see it. So in that case, I, you kind of answered this one, but what do you feel is an important change or evolution that needs to take place to ensure the success of the future of manufacturing in the U.S.? Is there anything you'd add to that? Well, a big part is the the human factor, you know? So like, you know, at Plethora, I actually made like a, um, like manufacturing sort of machinist boot camp kind of thing. And so we actually got a lot of people like who were basically not experienced at all. They were kind of like into hobbyist stuff. They might have been like, I mean, literally, we had people who were just working like, you know, fast food jobs, but they liked doing this. And we're like, hey, this person's smart. Let's like try them out, you know. And I have a big spreadsheet of these people and they're like senior machinists now. And that's pretty cool. So I'm like very proud of our work that we had, like, I mean, probably like 20 or 30 people really leveled up because we were like, you know, a lot of factories, it's like, you know, have a big expensive five axis machine and only the senior people can touch it. And for us, we had guys who like had like a month of training, you know, who started on a three axis and then moved to a five. And they were like, I mean, you know, and, and plethora having new parts constantly, they got a ton of experience like programming and tooling up. For that stuff so i feel like we were we were a good boot camp and i think the government should fund more of this like i think that like in europe this is a good thing they do they'll do a split where it's like okay there is an employer who wants these people like let's just say siemens there's like the government and then there's the student and i think there's some kind of split between there that kind of like uh, is a good incentivized thing so i think we've underinvested in manufacturing talent um, and a lot of this, like our, our vocational schools don't do this. And I think that we haven't done proper apprenticeship financing either. Like the economy used to be that you'd stay somewhere and get a pension. And so you knew your people were going to stick around. And so you could invest in them a lot. Well, then in like the 70s and 80s, the sort of like, you know, kind of business school crowd were like, it's way better if we can scale up and down people to have more of a variable thing, which, you know, in some ways is true, um, but it's locally true and systemically bad in some ways. So you want the labor dynamism, but you want to be able to invest in people's human capital. And I think that's the thing that we could actually do is you could have some kind of human capital where if they leave after two years, you still get paid for all your investment in their thing. So that's actually one reason why we couldn't scale even more at Plethora was I did the math on, okay, we bring someone in, we pay this much in there, basically reduce productivity while we're like, you know, while people are helping them make parts and they're not able to make parts and they're still getting a salary, there's a certain cost we bear in that. That was still more expensive than just hiring new or sorry, existing um, machinist talent. And so if I could say, you know, maybe I'm going to lose 40 grand before I get a payback to a normal rate, I think that the government should sponsor that. Or if I'm paying it until they leave and then the government is sponsoring it or something like this, because we actually got poached from like Google and Tesla, and, you know, these people could pay more than us, you know, mm -hmm. because they were like prototype machinists that didn't matter their costs, not production machinists, where the cost actually matters. Um, and so, and we actually paid pretty well, but like, you know, we were probably like top 10%, but they could be like top 5%. So we'd still get people leaving. Um, so I thought that we did this great thing from a hero capital perspective, but you couldn't scale it. So I wish the government would be a little bit more into subsidizing that. 
Well, we've just made it through, let's say, part two of our three-part saga here. And part three is going to be right around the corner. Thank you for listening, and thank you again to Nick for recording this super long episode with us. I hope you're enjoying this. This is the first time we've done a three-part saga like the one we've been doing recently. So, of course, if you want to learn more, if you want to dive in, Go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 113. That'll take you to the show notes page for this episode. It includes ways that you can connect with Nick and direct your own questions to him as well. And by the way, if you like this episode, if you like Manufacturing Happy Hour in general, if you like this format we've been doing, well, hey, leave us a five-star rating and review over at Apple Podcasts or leave us a five-star rating over on Spotify. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes or manufacturinghappyhour.com slash Spotify. Quite frankly, you're probably already sitting on that app listening to this podcast. So, hey, leave that review today. Leave that rating. It definitely helps us out. With that, stay innovative, stay thirsty. Part three is right around the corner. We'll be back real soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.